Welcome to the Dipshit Files, episode 45. I'm Mr. Scriptkeeper. And I'm Mrs. Scriptkeeper. And this week we're doing the mysterious disappearance of the Yuba County Five? Yes. Five? Five. What are we doing today? <laughs> is this, uh, is it UFOs? Is, is it Big Feet? No, no, this is a, this is a very interesting uh, human disappearance case. Okay, it's all human stuff. It's human stuff, yes. It is weird, though. Okay. It's very strange. Hmm. Um, and it's unsolved. Unsolved. Yeah, it's unsolved. It continues to remain unanswered and unsolved. Well, let's open up the file anyway. Yeah. We're on the dipshit files. lovely wife. What are we getting into? Well, uh, this story is actually, I don't know, have you ever heard of the Dilatov incident in Russia? I have, yeah. Okay. It's like that? It's similar. It's kind of similar, but it's the one from the U.S. So, oh. and it's actually compared to the, they actually call it the United States Dilatov incident. Mm. So, so it's crazy shit in the snow. It's really weird shit in the snow. Okay. Yeah. But it happened right in my home state in California. And you're sure there's not aliens or, well, you know, it's, I mean, Northern California is kind of alien to the earth in general. It's, it's a up very in that, interesting, it, unique place. It's up in that area. Well, is. This is I'm not talking San Francisco. I'm talking yeah. Yeah, well, it's up. It's up in that in that area in the Shasta area. Yeah, by weed. Right. So it is very. It's it's an interesting story. Um, there is a bunch of people have that over the years because this this story itself is forty four years old. I think now. Okay. And there has been a bunch of stories and weird shit. You know, speculation and, none and of them all of that. Fucking aliens! Come on! I know. How this long is, has it been since we did alien? All ah, right. I I know. No, this one is not. You know what? Let's do it. Let's do aliens next week. Oh, somebody's like, no. <laughs> They're like, fuck no. <laughs> no. You only say so much about aliens. Oh yeah. Hold my non-beer mm-hmm. that I'm not drinking. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's dig into. Hold this my egg and shake because yeah. we're going. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Dig in. Are you ready for Mrs. Scriptkeeper to tell you a kooky fucking story? The frigid night of February 24th, 1978 would be something Joseph Shones would never forget. It was perhaps the most terrifying moment he experienced in his entire life. The 55-year-old was driving along a crazy snowy mountain road in Northern California on his way back to check the skiing conditions at his lodge. Mm Mm-hmm. Not driving a vehicle made for these conditions, he quickly found himself trapped in the snow. Balls. Things would quickly go from bad to worse for Joseph. While trying to free his Volkswagen Beetle from becoming stuck in the snow, (laughs) Joseph felt a sudden tightness in his chest that was quickly building. And then the Volkswagen bug's ejector seat kicked in and shot him through the back window. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know if that's true. I heard that as a kid that they had little ejector seats. My dad told I've me never, that. I've was, never heard that. He was like, it's like Knight Rider, except for it's very dangerous. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So this pain was growing into an unbearable searing pain. He realized he was alone, stuck in the snow on the side of a friggin' mountain, mm. and he was having a heart attack. Yeah. Freezing and in a panic, he quickly moved back into his car and kicked the heater on to warm up. He hoped someone passing by would be able to transport him to safety, but what actually happened wasn't anything like what he had hoped. 
Joseph had been trapped for six hours straight when he noticed a dim light beginning to seep into his car. Had he grown so delirious that he was hallucinating? Before he could think about what was happening, he was engulfed in this light. Headlights were shining in from behind him. Joseph was so relieved, he thought he was finally going to be rescued from this friggin' nightmare. But then shit just grew bizarre. Uh Uh-oh. Peering up through the window, he saw six people dressed in cult robes getting out of a vehicle and then noticed one of them appeared to be holding a baby. It was just a snack. In a blizzard, Joseph was confused. But a blizzard might get hungry for babies. He didn't have time to question why these people would be deep in the snowy mountains late at night. Right. After what felt like an eternity of being confined in his car, he was growing frantic and actually kind of delirious. It would suck. I can imagine that sucking. <laughs> he cried out for help and for a moment it was completely silent. Then he saw the car's headlights abruptly go out. Jeepers, creepers. Now plunged into pitch darkness, Joseph was baffled and had no clue what was going on. His mind was reeling. Why would they ignore his cries for help? Evil. Were these weird motorists just going to leave him there to die? Then moving flashlight beams startled him from this morbid thought and he was hit with a pang of relief. For good measure, he shouted for help again, but something was just wrong. It was just off. Just like before, when he shouted for help, the flashlights went out. Mm. Trapped in the confines of his car, Joseph lay completely helpless. Whoever had pulled up behind him had no intentions of helping him. Mm. They were creeping around somewhere outside of his vehicle. He could hear them. And for unknown reasons to this day, they were just ignoring his cries for help. Shit. But things only got creepier from here. They got even closer in. Joseph then heard a weird, creepy whistle from outside of his car. This time, instead of relief, it filled him with dread. Instead of stopping, the strange whistle just faded as if it were moving away. And then it grew silent. Once again, Joseph lay in his car defenseless and completely alone. Wishing cell phones existed. Eventually, he ran out of gas and it was growing unbearably cold in his vehicle. Joseph had no other choice than to enter the snow flurry and seek help on his own. He cracked open his door and felt the biting cold of the night stinging his face. Mm. Aside from the crunch of his shoes reluctantly stepping into the snow, it was eerily quiet and pitch dark. Yikes. Whoever had been outside of his car was now completely gone. Fuckles, fuckles, fuckles. Joseph then walked eight miles to a cabin where he was able to finally find some help. Goddamn. He was transported to a hospital for treatment and he would recover. But what he didn't realize is he may have been the last person to ever see the Yuba County Five alive. Wow. Goddamn, that's just the intro to this shit. All right, let's get to the story. What really happened to the Yuba County Five? Located in Northern California along the Feather River, Yuba County is home to miles of open wilderness, mountainous slopes, and young growing families. However, five Yuba County local families were forced to experience the pain of their loved ones mysteriously disappearing into the night one cold winter evening in 1978. Unexplained missing person cases are typically reserved for younger children or adults traveling alone or with one other person, which is why this case is so disturbing. What made the disappearance of the Yuba Five so bizarre was that five adult men managed to vanish into thin air without any solid explanation. And to this day, this case remains unsolved. The night of the disappearance, Bill Sterling, Jack Madruga, 
Jack Hewitt, Ted Wire, and Gary Mathias, lovingly referred to as the boys, were aged between 24 and 32. Four of the group had mild intellectual disabilities, while Gary was diagnosed with schizophrenia and had violent tendencies. Unlike the other boys, Gary wasn't intellectually challenged. According to Yuba County Lieutenant Lance Ayers, some of the boys had IQs as low as in the 40s. The five friends had all met one another through an organization called Gateway that provided a community for individuals with special needs to engage in various activities and events. The boys' favorite activity in particular was basketball. Me too. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. On the fateful evening of February 24th, 1978, the boys had gone to watch a basketball game together at California State University in Chico. Hmm. Now, this game was against UC Davis, and this is 50 miles away from their homes in Yuba County. The five basketball fanatics were also scheduled to play a special Olympic-sponsored game together for their own team, the Gateway Gators, just the following day. They were so excited about their upcoming basketball game that a few of the boys even laid their uniforms out the night before, before they headed to Chico. Mm. Now, one of the exciting things about this game were these guys were going to get a chance to meet Sally Struthers, who was a very famous actress at the time. So they were just jazzed. Gary was incredibly eager to play their upcoming game, reminding his mother to not let him oversleep the next morning. They wouldn't have missed this game for the world, but no one could have possibly expected what would happen later that night. On Ted's way out the door, his grandmother insisted he take a coat with him, but he refused. Oh, Grandma, I don't need a coat, Ted said. Not tonight. Oh, foreshadowing. The five men piled into Jack's prized mercury and took off into the cold, snowy night, never to be seen alive again. William Lee Sterling, often called Bill by his friends, was 29 years old and originally from Yuba County. He was described by many as being deeply spiritual and can often be found reading religious texts that he would share throughout mental hospitals, hoping to help other patients find faith. He'd been diagnosed with mild developmental disabilities and lived with his parents for necessary support. Some strangers, however, had taken advantage of his disabilities back when he was a dishwasher at Beale Air Force Base. So the airmen would evidently, uh, they would frequently persuade him to get drunk so that they would turn around and they'd steal Bill's money. Additionally, Bill was not very fond of the outdoors. After just one fishing trip with his family, they had had a cabin out in the woods. He went on one trip. He declared he never wanted to go again. I feel that as well. This guy absolutely detested the outdoors. So that's Bill. Mm -hmm. Now, Jack Madruga was 30 years old and very close friends with Bill. Jack was a high school graduate who had also served in the U.S. Army. In more recent times, however, he'd been working on a factory line where he was eventually fired. Although Jack had no official diagnosis, his family believed him to have a mild learning disability. He drove a turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montego, which was his pride and joy. And he also lived with his parents. Now, Jack Hewitt was the youngest of the group at age 24. He was the most severely disabled of the entire group. He hated being away from home for any extended period of time. When he was much younger, he had been diagnosed with mild learning disabilities and was best friends with Ted Wire. 
The two of them were often described as brothers, and they did almost everything together. Now, Theodore Earl Wire, or Ted, was 32 years old. He had attended Marysville High School and was described by others as a friendly guy with a reputation for relentless positivity. He was also known to lack a basic understanding of finances and made some extremely poor decisions, having once spent over $100 on pencils for absolutely no reason at all. All right. Quote, he didn't understand why you had to stop at stop signs. He'd wake me up in the middle of the night to say, how come Mickey Mantle can hit the ball further than me? His brother Dallas Wire had said in an interview. Hmm. Despite his challenges, though, he was outgoing and had been working in a snack bar, though his family had urged him to quit on account of the stress levels they felt that he suffered due to his learning disabilities. Now, Gary Del Matthias uh, was age 25. He wore thick prescription glasses and was a U.S. Army veteran, but had been discharged due to psychiatric reasons in 1973 while serving in Germany. He was later diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, a condition that once gave him endless behavioral trouble and resulted in the occasional very violent outburst. Mm. After treatment, he'd been able to control his illness and learn to cope with the help of daily medication. At the time of his disappearance, Gary had lived a fairly stable life with schizophrenia over the past two years and had even started working part-time as a laborer for his father-in-law's small landscaping business. So as the night in question drew on, the boys were giddy with their team's victory. They made their way back to Madruga's car and drove a short distance from the campus to Bears Market in downtown Chico, planning to sink their teeth into some treats to celebrate. Mm. It was shortly before the store's 10 p.m. closing time, and the clerk distinctly remembers them because she was really irritated that such a large group had come in and delayed her from starting the process of closing up shop. Right, I just mopped. She's like, God. Little did she know, though, she would be the last person to ever see them alive. Mm. Loading up on hostess pies, candy bars, and all sorts of snacks, the boys piled back into Jack Madruga's Mercury Montego and then hit the road. That night, some of the men's parents stayed up just to make sure they returned home, but when morning came and they had not... The police were notified. They quickly came upon their first clue, though. It was utterly bizarre and just didn't make any sense. So at the very beginning of the investigation, the police received a tip from a local ranger who had found a car matching the dispatcher's description. It was a turquoise Mercury Montego parked off the side of the road east of the location of the college basketball game the men had attended. I got to stop you. Every time you said Montego, Mm -hmm. my brain immediately goes to the Beach Boys. Montego. Baby, why don't Mm -hmm. we go down to Coco? I don't know where it is in the song. All dang it. That yep. triggers me. I know, me too. Hard. <laughs> Hard. Aruba. Bahana, Aruba, Jamaica. Uh, yeah. Jamaica. I can't sing because then I'm going to cough. I'm take it to... <laughs> all right. Well, all right. Here, hold okay. on. One second. Steve, play the thing. Yeah, there we go. Out of Steve. Take it to Bermuda, Bahama, come on, pretty mama. Kilago, Montego, baby, why don't we go to the Cucamon? Everybody! Nothing so. It was Jack Madruga's car, but Jack's car wasn't parked in just any location. 
Somehow, they ended up 70 miles away from the basketball game on a remote, bumpy mountain road, winding through the Sierra County mountain range. Madruga was completely unfamiliar with this area. It made absolutely no sense why they had been out there. This is something no one has been able to explain to this day. What in the world could have possibly lured the boys to go so far from the game? And you're sure it's not aliens, right? right. There's no speculation. Evident- well, there's a bunch of speculation that it's aliens, especially with the, the... Well, it'll all pull together. A part of me, just not to belittle anything going on here, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Fuggles comes to mind. <laughs> anyway, proceed. I just, in the back of my head... Oh, the big titty to, what is that? Yeah, dog boy. Dog, dog boy. man. Dog big man, titty big dog man. Eight tittied. Things only grew more weird as the investigation moved forward. The car was left unlocked with one of the windows rolled completely down, which was incredibly odd considering the freezing nighttime temperature and the consistently falling snow. The wrappers from the snacks the men had bought at Bear's Market the night before were the only trace left behind of the five friends. They lay scattered around the vehicle, but the boys were gone. Wait, are you saying that those guys were litter bugs? <laughs> and it was inside the vehicle. Okay. Oh, okay. One half-eaten candy bar seemed to have been dropped in a hurry in the back seat, and the keys to the car were missing. For no explainable reason, the boys had abandoned the safety and warmth of their car for the freezing cold and snow outside. Even more strange was the fact that Madruga's car was in perfect working condition. When the police hotwired it to see if they had experienced any engine trouble, they found it started the very first time without an issue. In fact, the car still had a quarter tank of gas, which would have provided the boys heat in the event that they had gotten stuck, but that didn't seem to be the case at all. Despite the evidence in the snow that the wheels had spun a bit, it easily drove out of the low drift. Why had the five men chosen to abandon a perfectly operational, safe, warm vehicle in the middle of a rural, wintry terrain in the middle of the night? This again makes me think, Mr. Fuggles. <laughs> I mean, eight titties is it, no man can. Uh, under further inspection, investigators noted that there was no damage to the undercarriage of the vehicle either. This led them to believe that the men had driven extremely carefully along the bumpy, pothole-riddled road before seemingly abandoning the vehicle and disappearing into the night, Hmm. poorly dressed for the cold mountain conditions. The immediate search efforts proved fruitless, and the dangerous winter conditions continued to worsen. For weeks after the men's disappearance, snowstorms were rolling in, and they were rolling in fast. Rescue teams were putting their own lives at risk, searching the nearby area for any signs of the boys in the ever-deepening snow. The searches were called off to wait for safer weather, but time continued to press on with no signs of the missing men. As the families of the men grew more and more concerned over their disappearances of their sons, witnesses and potential leads began to trickle in. At this point, the story kind of takes a creepy turn. After seeing the report of the five missing men in their car, Joseph Shones came forward and admitted to seeing a turquoise and white Mercury Montego around 20 yards down the road from his own vehicle the night he had a heart attack. (laughs) Perhaps the lights Joseph saw that night belonged to the five men wandering away from the safety of their own vehicle before vanishing into the woods. But why would the boys just ignore Joseph's cries for help? If Joseph truly spotted the men that night, 
Who was the sixth person he spotted getting out of that Montego? The woman with a baby. (laughs) Ted's mother was quick to report to the police that ignoring someone's pleas for help was not like her son, if he indeed had been present. She recalled how Ted and Bill had once helped a friend get to the hospital after overdosing on Valium. Ted and Bill. You should have said it, Bill and Ted. (laughs) (laughs) They're having an excellent event. It was not an excellent Was it an excellent? No, it's not. It's It's a bogus journey. It's a terrible adventure. It's a bogus journey. If the group had also been in trouble that night, why would they have kept quiet when they happened to stumble upon Joseph? A second witness later came forward stating that she had seen the boys. The woman was a store clerk at Mary's Country Store in Brownsville, just 30 miles southeast of where the Madrugas car was discovered. She reported seeing five men matching the photographs released by the police at around 2 p.m. on Saturday, February 25th. Jack and Bill, she claimed, were using a phone inside the store while the others sat in a red pickup truck outside in the parking lot. The story was then confirmed by her boss, and the police found her to be a credible witness. But the families were totally unconvinced. These were not their boys, they said. They stated Jack had an extremely intense fear of speaking on the phone. They couldn't possibly believe it was him talking on a phone inside the store. His brother even said that he took all of Jack's phone calls from his group of friends because he was so uncomfortable with that form of interaction. Mm. The boys will remain lost with no leads for nearly four months after this bizarre winter night. Then on Saturday, June 4th, a deeply disturbing discovery was made by a group of weekend bikers. They were out cruising on their motorcycles when they stumbled upon an abandoned forest, uh, like, well, they call it a trailer park deep in the woods, but it's not. It was actually a campground. So I'm going to kind of give you an idea of what this looks like. So it's kind of a, a trail off the main road, and it leads to this campground that's basically unused. There was a trailer there. It was like a, I don't know, like an 18-foot trailer park. It was a trailer, a couple of trailers. Mm -hmm. And there was also some outbuildings. This trailer was used for the campground superintendent that would kind of come and go. Hold his lawnmower and his Well, uh, yeah, it would come and go. Deer feeding materials. So that's what this is here. It's it's a closed park. It's not really open because there's a lot of snow still in June up in the mountains here. Um, But they came across this trailer. And they were hoping for a quick break from writing. But instead, they discovered something repulsive. Pulling the rusty trailer door open, they were immediately hit by a stomach-churning stench. Mm. According to then Yuba County Undersheriff Beecham, quote, When you got up in that area, you could smell the death. It was horrible, that stench, end quote. After taking a moment to gather their wits about them, they had to get a closer look. On the bunk bed lay a body wrapped in five to eight layers of blankets, one even covering the head. On the bedside table sat a ring engraved with the name Ted, a necklace, a wallet, and alongside those items, a gold watch. I don't mean to be crass, but there was also like this telephone booth that looked kind of like a time machine sitting outside the... (laughs) Well, this this wrap body was Ted Wire. He wore no shoes. In fact, his shoes were completely gone. His feet had been badly frostbitten and were obviously becoming infected while he was still alive. His pants were rolled up to his knees, and it was clear five of his toes were missing. 
Police estimated from his weight loss and hair growth. So from the weight that he lost and the growth, they went with his beard growth. That Ted had somehow survived up there for six to 13 weeks. Shit. In that freezing trailer before slowly starving, freezing, and dying of exposure and pulmonary edema. Oh, that makes me wonder about his toes. <clears throat> Did he eat them? Or well, what they here? what they think, um, the final autopsy, pulmonary edema, I guess, was caused by um, the gangrene in his feet. Mm. But this wasn't even the strangest part of this discovery. So this trailer was almost 20 miles uphill from the abandoned car. This meant that somehow Ted would have walked almost 20 miles through heavy snowdrifts up to six feet deep just to reach this park. The trailer was thoroughly searched and there was a bunch of evidence collected, but rather than bringing understanding to the events that led him to this point, things only became more muddy. So the trailer was stocked full of supplies. It was simply baffling why the supplies seemed to lay unused and untouched, despite the fact that Ted basically starved and froze to death in the bitter cold of the winter. Well, then he must not have been in there, right? Like somebody put him in there or something. It's, it's a real, real weird. So the, th- the thick forestry clothing found in that trailer could have warmed him, uh, that, but it remained untouched. Hmm. There were matches and a collection of paperback books that could have easily been used for kindling, but no attempts at starting a fire had ever been made. Even more baffling was the full butane tank that had not been switched on to warm the frigid trailer. He never kicked the heater on. Mm. The only thing Ted seemed to manage to crack into was a nearby storage shed. But investigators quickly realized that Ted couldn't have been the only one in the trailer. First, based on the grisly decay of Ted's feet prior to his death, there's no way he could have pulled those blankets all around himself, tucking it in like that without experiencing agonizing pain. Um, thus likely a deterrent. Second of all, 31 C-ration cans from the shed lay empty. These cans were opened with what was called a P-38 can opener. This is the same type of can opener that only Gary and Madruga would be familiar with due to their experience in the Army. Hmm. So according to this evidence, Ted simply couldn't have been alone. The other boys, or at least a couple of them, must have also made it to the trailer. And there was absolutely no reason Ted should have starved and frozen to froze to death. And it didn't want him to eat my beans. Well, if they had simply peeked into a locker with the same shed, inside the same shed they found the sea ration cans, they would have discovered an incredible amount of dehydrated food hmm. that could have fed all of them for a whole year. Shit. Investigators then discovered Gary's sneakers in the trailer, but could find no other sign of him anywhere. Nearby police speculated that perhaps Ted took Gary's sneakers, even though they were way too big for him, leaving Gary with Ted's sturdy leather shoes. But that would mean Ted's shoes were too small for Gary. It just doesn't make any sense. Ultimately, though, Ted had starved and frozen to death, surrounded by food and potential warmth for reasons that will remain unknown, aside from the potential of maybe sepsis from infection. Mm. However, according to his family, it wasn't surprising that Ted didn't take advantage of the readily available food and heat sources. They recalled one night when their house caught on fire. In the midst of escaping the blaze and suffocating smoke, they had to actually drag Ted out of his bed to save his life. 
He stated he didn't want to miss his job the next day, so he remained in bed during the blaze. What? Yeah, so getting his sleep. He wanted to make sure that he got enough sleep to work. You know, sleep is very important. That is how. That is right. one of the secrets to life. Right. <laughs> Investigators had discovered one item of great interest in the abandoned trailer, though. Mm. The gold watch found alongside Ted's body. All right, this sounds... I gotta, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, that's okay. But this sounds like the perfect Fallout cabin from the video game Fallout. Where oh, you're really? Like, oh, fuck yeah, I found some beans and I found... Oh, God, there's a gun, yes. And, you know, <laughs> and a gold watch. Yes, exactly. Oh. It's just all these things. Well, that's strange. <laughs> it's all the booty. Uh, all of the treasure. In I've never place. played that game. And it sucks because I'm listening to this person that, yeah, this avoiding is... this shit. And you're like, that was the best possible Fallout find of all time. <laughs> oh, no. Usually you find... A broken thing and some fucking spider eggs, and you're like, no, and then uh, a spider. And that's okay. Well, this watch, this was a piece of evidence investigators felt was crucial. Mm-hmm. Could it prove that foul play had been involved in the disappearance of all five men? Mm. Well, unfortunately, the gold watch remained a complete mystery. Upon closer inspection, the family members all agreed that that watch did not belong to any of their boys. No solid evidence was gathered to prove anything more, and it was impossible to tell when the watch might have been left in the trailer. You know what I think happened? Uh, you know what I think? Who I think left? What? It, it's either a time traveler <laughs> or Mr. Fox. Time traveling Jesus. It could be time, time traveling Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> he usually intervenes, but he usually does things, you know, well. Well, uh, it, it could was, be Mr. Fuggles. It well. was impossible to tell when the watch might have been left at the trailer, despite the fact that it was discovered at the same time as Ted's body. It doesn't mean that it was left there at the same time. So just two days after the discovery of Ted, the investigators made another grim find. Deep in the woods, the skeletal remains of Jack Madruga and Bill Sterling were found only four and a half miles south of the abandoned trailer just off the road. Hmm. It appears if they had tried to make it through the heavy snowdrifts with Ted, Gary, and Jack Hewitt, but failed. Madruga's car keys still remained in the pockets of his pants. His cause of death was ruled as a result of hypothermia and exposure, but Bill's cause of death was undetermined, as all that was left of Bill was a few scattered bones. Mm. Investigators were against Jack Hewitt's father joining them on this part of the search, but Jack Sr. was determined to bring his son home one way or another. I get that vibe. He insisted on joining them during this search. Two days later, they were searching the woods yet again, looking for the still missing Jack Hewitt and Gary Mathias. At some point, Jack Hewitt Sr. saw something out of the ordinary, not far from the trailer. It was actually a jacket laying in the snow. Rushing over to pick it up, Jack was heartbroken as he watched his son's spine fall out of the jacket onto the forest floor. The rest of his bones were scattered, and just a few feet away was Jack Hewitt's skull. Animals got him. Had Jack Hewitt also failed to traverse the snowdrifts to the trailer after leaving Ted and Gary, the only two to make it there? Or had he made it there just to wander back out to die? Despite continued searches, the remains of Gary Mathias were never found. Police put out descriptions to all local hospitals and mental health facilities, but no information ever serviced, and he remained a missing person. If he were still alive, how had he been surviving with no money, no identification, and crucially, no medication for his schizophrenia? So it's worth mentioning, back in 1975, Gary had suddenly abandoned his schooling efforts at Yuba College and moved to Oregon to go live with his grandmother. 
His mother and stepfather begged him over the phone to return home, but Gary would just simply hang up on them. Hmm. Then, to their astonishment, his family opened their front door to find a disheveled and grimy Gary. Weeks later, he had managed to travel over 500 hundred and forty miles on foot from portland oregon to marysville california according to gary he said he stole milk and ate dog food to stay alive during his travels i've been there dog food's delicious it can be (laughs) quite nutritious in another instance of strangeness when gary was admitted to a state mental hospital he managed to somehow escape by squeezing through a drain pipe He then made it all the way back to Marysville by hitchhiking, still in his hospital gown. Yeah. So Gary Mathias remains a missing person to this day, and no additional information as to his whereabouts have surfaced since his tragic disappearance on the mountainside that mysteriously took the lives of his four friends. Could Gary have gone on another unbelievable trek throughout the mountains, ending up in such a remote location that he'll simply never be found? Maybe. One of the most baffling unanswered questions is how the five men managed to somehow end up on the mountainous roadside to begin with. Yeah, way, way, way. Right. So authorities later learned that Gary had friends in the small town of Forbestown. And police believe that it was possible that they all had attempted to visit these friends on the way back home that night. The men may have taken a wrong turn near Oroville that put them on the mountain road. However, the men's own families say that they don't believe the boys would ever voluntarily drive onto the mountain road Hmm. on account of their dislike of the great outdoors and tendency to stick rigidly to habits and routines. Now, additionally, it's, it's worth mentioning here, too, that... All four of those boys were afraid of the dark. Uh-oh. So they had a fear of the dark. What the fuck are they doing out there? So it just doesn't really make sense. Plus they had a basketball game in the morning, right? Exactly. Yeah. And they got to go meet Sally Struthers. They were playing with the, um, uh, it was sponsored by the Special Olympics. It yeah. was a huge game. So Jack Madruga's mother, Mabel, even said, quote, there is some force that made them go up there. They would not have fled into the woods like a bunch of quail. We know good and well that somebody made them do it. End quote. Furthermore, why had the men felt the need to abandon a perfectly good running car? That doesn't make any sense. A car that Jack Madruga considered to be his most prized possession. Why had the men then trekked a further 20 miles up a mountain hillside to reach a trailer park that nobody really knew existed? rather than turn around and go back the way they came. Then, when they arrived, why had they barely touched the food in the trailer park locker? You know? Right. This case is loaded with endless unanswered questions. The mysterious disappearance of the Yuba County Five has haunted the lives of family, friends, and locals for years. There were possibly more answers to what happened on that night in 1978 that were lost beneath the blanket of snowfall that winter, but this mystery didn't end there. So, get this. It was only three weeks after the Yuba County Five vanished when Yuba City woman Debbie Lynn Reese received a series of strange phone calls she'll never forget. The first call was incredibly chilling. So, hello, Debbie answered. On the other end of the line, a man stated coldly, I know where the missing five men are. And then he abruptly hung up the phone. Uh This call, no doubt, shook Debbie to her core, but it didn't stop there. 
The next day rolled around, and yet again, the phone rang. Debbie answered, hello? He began to speak, and startled, she realized it was the same man. I need help because I really hurt those guys bad. Who did you hurt, Debbie asked, rattled. Don't play dumb with me, he said, and then hung up. God damn, bro. The very next day, he called for a third time. This guy's got just social anxiety. Yeah. That's all it is. He's like, I'm really bad on the phone. I'm really a nice guy. Uh, Maybe not. So he calls, and she answers the phone, and he says, those five guys, they're all dead. They're all dead, Debbie repeated. They're all dead. The mystery man hung up and was never heard from again. Shit. The TV show Unsolved Mysteries contacted the boys' family so they could make an episode covering this bizarre case of the Yuba County Five, but evidently it didn't work out. Okay, I just play the thing, Steve. I'm sorry. I just... <laughs> Thank you, Steve. God, I love this song. This is the stuff that I fall to sleep to almost every night. I really? love that stuff. You got a creepy ass soundtrack, is that what you're saying? Yep, yep. Yeah. That is one of the better musical riffs from Man, the that's TV so shows cool. back in the day. So now, according to the Sacramento Bee, every family did agree to this episode. Well, every family except Gary's family. Okay. This bizarre twist raised suspicions, particularly from Dallas Wire, Ted's brother. Quote, now that's just suspicious. I'm not saying they knew, but well, you could probably guess what I think. Dallas stated when he asked if he believes Gary set the four others up to die. Mm. He said that's the only thing that makes sense. The Sacramento Bee attempted to contact Gary's surviving family members for comment and all of his siblings either declined comment or were unable to be reached. Jack Beecham, former Yuba County Sheriff, also seems to agree that something is suspicious about Gary, according to the Sacramento Bee. They were either forced or manipulated, Beecham stated. And where does Matthias come into that? Maybe he had nothing to do with it. We'll never know, but I think he did. I know parents at the time told us, they told me personally, that they had deep concerns about Gary being involved in this. They were not wavering in their opinion and telling me that, Beecham said. The other four were always together. They walked a lot of places together, always together. And he was just a different personality type. He didn't meld with the other four, according to the parents. Even the case files seemed to put an emphasis on Gary. They suggested that Gary would typically be the most likely member of the group to, quote, lead and suggest places to go or things to do. Even the boys basketball coach said he felt Gary could possibly flip out at any moment. To this day, it's unknown how Gary was even able to enter the Gateway program. He didn't have intellectual disabilities like the other boys. But the final disturbing detail regarding Gary was his own prediction of his future. So according to Gary's longtime friend, Janet, Gary repeatedly told her that he had a dream that where he and several other people would just disappear someday. Hmm. Janet stated that Gary could be a very violent person, seriously injuring several men in the past. Regardless of the mystery behind their disappearances, this strange case of close friends is a truly tragic story and a terrible end to a night that should have been nothing but fun. So now in my research, I discovered a bit more information that provided a new spin on this story. An author named Drew Beeson released a book called Out of Bounds, What Happened to the Yuba County Five in late 2020. 
Drew heavily researched the case for years and was able to make contact with members of the Hewitt, Madruga, and Matthias families and ask them questions regarding this mystery. He was also able to find almost every news article from 1978-1979 reporting the case as it unfolded. After talking to the families, Drew found out that the overall distance from Jack's abandoned car to the trailer was actually only 11.5 miles, not 20. Hmm. Still Appar- a fuckload of... It's still a long ways. Yeah. So apparently the newspapers were the ones who exaggerated the overall distance to make the case more mysterious. Hmm. Members of the Hewitt family, the Madrugas, and Gary Mathias' sister don't believe Gary killed his friends. They believe a man who knew Gary at the time and is still alive today in Yuba City killed Gary first, near Oroville, and then forced the other four men up the road into the woods. Apparently, two people who actually knew this individual, and by association they knew Gary as well, they claimed to see this guy actually kill Gary that night. But both then would die mysteriously of a drug overdose just a few days after the bodies were found. This individual that the families are suspicious of was very violent, according to Drew, after researching this individual, who was described as the town bully. He stated, if you thought Gary was bad, he was nothing compared to this guy. So that's that's kind of an interesting little spin. Yeah. Also, Joe Shones the principal eyewitness, the guy who was having a heart attack, mm-hmm. uh, he was also apparently really shady and suspicious. Oh, no. <clears throat> Joe had previously shot at his neighbor's property after a small dispute one time while the neighbor's kids were outside playing. Oh, shit. Joe also grew weed on his property, well, obviously illegal at this time. Well, you know. He was considered a compulsive liar Man. and would often get into fights with the local townspeople of Berry Creek where he lived. So it's also worth noting that Joe claimed he was suffering a heart attack that night. And I thought this was funny about the story because I thought this too. He was suffering a heart attack in his car that night. He saw the other vehicle on the road, but miraculously, he was able to walk four or five miles uphill to a lodge. So that was kind of a strange little thing. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. So the area around Berry Creek and Forbes Town was described as the Wild West. Law enforcement was not as active in those areas, so so crime was really high, especially drug dealings and murder. Kathy Madruga, Jack's niece, visited Forbes Town once to look for Gary and Jack and was threatened at gunpoint to leave by a local. Also, Kathy swears she saw Gary Mathias at a local family-owned bar after the bodies of the four men were found. Fucking Gary did it. She reported it to the police and told Drew she was adamant it was Gary, which was her uncle. Yep, Gary did it. But evidently nothing came of it. Mm. So through all of the hearsay, journalistic input, media coverage, Gary, what do you think? I want to know what you think, husband. Mm. Oh, me? Yeah, so it's weird for sure. Mm-hmm. But what actually happened to the four friends? That's a good question, Mr. Fuggles. All right, well, let's talk about it on the other side of a noisy thing made with music. And what do our dipshits think about today's story? All right, what do I think? Yeah, I'm curious. Well, what I think is probably the dumbest possible theories. Uh, they're mine. <laughs> no, I'm curious, and I'm curious to hear what our listeners think, too. Yeah. Um, there was, there's a lot of wild theories that are spinning around this story. Everything from aliens mm-hmm. uh, to, like, weird paranormal sound weirdness up there to, I mean, there's cryptid I speculation. Got a, I got one that's not as paranormal. Are you going to bring up Fuggles? Up. 
uh, no, actually, you know, oh. Mr. Fuggles, I feel like he can be ruled out mainly <laughs> for this one. But no, more <clears throat> hills have eyes kind of shit. Like, oh. because uh, she she was briefly brought up, but the lady that the the guy with the heart attack mm-hmm. said he saw mm-hmm. holding a baby. It's almost like what happened there? Did she right. did she lure them up the mountain? Uh, and then a bunch of people ate them or, or tried to eat them. And the why would this? Why? Yes, I, I see what you're saying, but ate that guy's toes. It would. It's a very strange situation that a woman would be out in that blizzard at night when these men were having a hard time. Have you heard of you a succubus? I mean? <laughs> That's kind of when they strike. And why would if that was a baby? And it was a real baby. Right. Why would she have her child out in a blizzard? Because the baby's got to work. You know, when you're <laughs> living hard, when you're living on the mountains, when you're homesteading, even the baby's got to work. Um, it's got a role to play. I don't know. Part I don't know. Fam. Got to remember, too, Joe Shones was proven to be a, he was known to be a liar. Right. A compulsive liar. Right. So what do you think? Will you tell me what you think? I don't, that's the thing. I, I'm not sure. I kind of... I kind of want to lean towards the town bully mm-hmm. in Forbes town, right. Gary's friend. Uh, and that's a very new thing. And the thing that I don't understand is this guy did a bunch of research and he talked to people. But if this were true, how come the police didn't dig this up 40 years ago? Right. How come they didn't hear about these theories? Yeah. All, all us podcasters yeah. um, covering the truth well, it's just, 40 years later, but it's not really. Yeah. I, it's very strange that the police would not have done um, a thorough investigation, but that is another claim by the families that they gave up on that. Like, as an example, they gave up on the search way too soon. Um, and it was weather related. Right. Uh, it was very dangerous to do the search, but the families were pissed because they thought they gave up on their children way too soon. Right. Well, these and, people have children too. <clears throat> and probably, es- you know. essentially they did. Yeah. I mean, it was shown that uh, Ted survived for anywhere from six to 13 weeks up there. Right. Because you, of the length right, yeah. of his beard. That would have, as a mother, that would have destroyed me right. knowing my child was out there the whole time. Yeah. You know, yeah, I don't care if he's 50, he's still my child and I would still be having a hard time knowing he's stuck there the whole time. For real. So that would be, that would be hard. Um, but it's, that was one of the claims that the family said the police didn't fulfill their duties. Right. Although when you look back into the case itself, they really did. They got, I don't know. I'm just going by what has been Posted, sure. I guess, and you're, probably saying, about. you're saying something super controversial to a handful of people. They're like, no, nah, what? But I wasn't there, of course. I mean, right. I was like five when this happened, right. um, if that. But um, they got out there on their ATVs. There was full search and rescue going on. They had dogs and everything. Mm-hmm. They just didn't find anything. It took a while. Yeah. They and didn't that, find anything until June. And it happens. That yeah. Happens. Well, and the snow had to melt, too. We're talking, and that year, oh, that was the other thing. That year, that winter was harsh. They had between 5 and 15 foot snow drifts. Well, that's why they called it off, because it was going to be dangerous mm-hmm. for the people yeah. searching. And that, exactly. that's fair, too, because right. they, they're somebody's kids. And mm-hmm. Even if it's their job, it's still like, well, we're not going to just sacrifice their, their right. lives. Right, you know, exactly. Like, needlessly, in a sense, or like recklessly. Yeah, we need to do this as safely as possible. Yeah, everyone yeah. cares about saving your kid but we also want to just keep the yeah and we know that they have a dangerous job god damn it it's complicated but martha and steve's children who are at home waiting for them they're the search and rescue people their children are worried about their parents too yes let's not forget that yes 
100 percent uh mm-hmm. you know you and i have a lot of experience driving through northern california uh-huh like I, we moved down there a few times. I, like mm-hmm. I had some interesting experiences by myself mm. through basically Southern Oregon and Northern California, mm-hmm. where it's it is a different part of the world. Mm-hmm. Where mm. oh, absolutely! I went to college up there in yeah. this area. In fact, there's a, a lake in Oroville that we went to, mm-hmm. um, and there was another place in the middle between uh, Eureka. So Eureka is right on the coast. Oroville is like right. If you go inland, I think slightly south Mm -hmm. from Eureka, literally slightly south, but you go inland, you'll hit Oroville. And I think that drive was like an hour and a half, I think, if I remember correctly. We went to a lake in Oroville or around that area. And uh, yeah, we went in the summer, late spring, early summer, and it was very desolate. But this and this was in 92, 93. Mm-hmm. So it was really empty and desolate out there. Even yeah. then, you could be driving around out there and get lost in these mountain roads so easy. It feels like there's nutty shit going on. Nutty shit. There like, was beautiful, beautiful areas driving around. Oh, it's super around, beautiful. That's probably why. It's driving people crazy. Gorgeous. But then you would turn on a road and you would just get this feeling uh-huh. like, I don't belong here. Dude, that's it. Turn okay. around. I don't belong here. Like, when I first went to Weed, California, I mm-hmm. think I was going there with my family and was like, oh, Weed, <laughs> and you drive through there. Mm-hmm. Da, da, da. When I went through there myself, mm-hmm. and when I heard, and, I, and you know, I'd been through there a few times and I talked to people and stuff, mm-hmm. like the vibe there was weird because it's like, you know, buy the I love weed shirt. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like this weird tourist thing, like, I love weed. <laughs> right. And then you're like, oh, I'm gonna take a I'm gonna take a picture by the sign, like smoke a weed, bro. And they're yeah. like, No, you won't. You're fucking going to jail. Yeah. Like for a <laughs> exactly. lot of years till recently, they're like, No, you will not. And it's yeah. like, Well, you're not in on the joke, you don't get mm-hmm. that they're like, We don't like weed. Right. We just are called weed. Right. <laughs> and we love weed because we're weed and not your weed. Get the fuck out. Well, there's Klamath Falls too, that's a beautiful, right. beautiful area, but also has a if you you get out of the main area it's got a very strange vibe to it yeah. uh there's some uncomfortable pockets that you obviously don't belong here you need to go home there is that vibe <laughs> yeah. yeah yes it's so some, some sort of vent some sort of radiation i'm not sure i'm not the, sure what it is but uh, people mad northern california is absolutely gorgeous it really is and uncomfortable in spots if you're in an area where you don't belong well there's a reason that there aren't really any sizable I mean, there's not very many big cities up there compared to like Central Valley or yeah, yeah the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah, I see that. I mean, not even close. They're they're further apart from each other. Yeah, for they're, sure. They're just nestled. They're like, leave us alone. Yeah, get off my entire fucking region. Get off, get off my, my mountain side. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, anywho, <laughs> one thing I noticed almost every story when we go back in time before 1999 mm-hmm. or whatever the fuck it was, mm-hmm. we are lucky that we live in the cell phone era. Oh hell yes! Because none of this, most of the shit of is avoided. And if, exactly. fi- if there were five of them, somebody's cell phone would have worked. Yeah. Somebody would have had some weird ass thing on their phone where it's like, oh yeah, fucking, there's a satellite that just follows me. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So exactly. somebody would have been on Facebook, like, please help. Yeah, they would have been streaming the whole thing, or <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, on TikTok or Fair something. Enough. You know. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so yeah, we are lucky yeah. that that shit should happen so much less than mm-hmm. it used to happen. Yeah, you're and, right. And it strikes me every time I okay. do one of these. 
I'm going to give that one to the robots. Thank you so much for technology. I appreciate that because that robots. is very, very true. You hear that, robots? She fucking, and her heart I, grew three sizes that uh, day. <laughs> <laughs> and now the toaster won't try and strangle you when mm. the fucking maximum Well, I'm still making happens. a I hate robots t-shirt. All right. I can't help myself. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's fair. Well, thank you so much for doing the research on this and yes, presenting you're welcome. it to us. You're that was welcome. so fun just listening and being captivated by this weird story. Really of, strange story. Very, yeah, very strange. Unsolved shit. And for anybody that would like to dig a little bit, um, you could just look up the Yuba Five, um, Mr. Whatever. It's the, U, the Yuba County Five or the Yuba Five. Mm-hmm. There's more detail um, about the condition of the bodies and that sort of thing that I didn't put in here cause it wasn't necessary. Right. Um, but yeah, if you want to take a look, there's, there's a bit more detail there's in there. Gruesomeness, I'm sure, yeah. Too. Well, there's one thing I do want to bring up before okay. we wrap things up. We have a young lady who listens to this show and all of the scat cast, uh, network shows and her name is Madison. Madison. And she's, she she's is a, having a birthday. And it's her birthday. Happy yes. birthday. So I want to wish her happy birthday. She's a fantastic member of the Scatcast family and the daughter of the shitbox wizard. Yes. Uh, yeah. So happy birthday, Madison. Happy birthday, Madison. We appreciate you so much. And mm-hmm. for all the things that you do for us. And uh, of course your father as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we love having you part of the family and we hope you have a wonderful day of celebrationing of your birth. Yes, absolutely. Happy yes. birthday, sweet thing. Yes. Well, thank you to the trusted turd triad. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you to Don and to Chris and to Bodie for doing stuff behind the scenes and yep. to all of you that do stuff behind the scenes. There's a ton of you. Helping yeah, us. absolutely. The Godhead and there's, there's PJ the and disposal. Minnie and, and there's yes. just a bunch of folks. Yep. And we appreciate Deja. all of you. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for checking out patreon.com forward slash scatcast to help us out. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for checking out our merch at scatcast.com. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking you, I don't know if you've done those things. <laughs> it's okay if you don't. It's okay if you don't. Info at scatcast.com. You can tell us why you don't want to. You're yeah, like, Fuck yeah. you, bro. And if you, have, on. if you know anything about this case of the Yuba County Five, yeah, send us uh, info at scatcast.com. Send us links. Uh, Give us your opinions. What do you think happened? If you're offended that we called your part of the world kind of weird and people that live there kind of weirdos, <laughs> hills have eyes kind of stuff, then, you know, I, let us know that too. Th- we did not make Monique's fun Monique's from there. She's like 10 miles away from there. She, she went to college there. She's called I, to there. She's I, crazy too. Cool. I love it. I think it's absolutely beautiful, but there are areas where you don't fucking belong. It does. And you can so feel much. it. There the was hair, one specific time where you and I yeah. we pulled into some town that was like, oh God. Yeah. The peach fuzz on your face stands on it. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, I don't yeah. belong here. Hurry up and turn around before I, I'm getting nauseated. Let's turn around. Yeah, there's cheese bumps. There's yeah. goose bumps. These were like the spoopy bumps. The spoopy bumps. Spoop yes. Bumps. The, the spoopy. Bumps. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do not belong bumps. Yeah. For hey, sure. Get the fuck out bumps. <laughs> yeah. GTFO bumps. That's right. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. And as always, we'll talk at you in the future. And it'll seem like the present. Bye. Bye. Bing bong. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Madison. Madison.
Happy birthday to you.